Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, I'm Daniel Eisenberg, and this is McKinsey on Startups. By these days, software product managers should be used to having the goalposts moved. Once primarily focused on execution and on-time delivery, product manager roles have been heavily transformed over the past decade or two. They are now expected to serve as a mini-CEO, making key decisions and acting as the glue that binds the many functions that touch a product, from engineering, design, and customer success, to sales, marketing, operations, and finance. And now, amid growing societal concerns about responsible stewardship, Product managers in both established tech companies and startups are having to incorporate privacy, sustainability, and inclusion into their already complex processes. Customers, investors, and regulators alike are demanding this shift. A recent McKinsey article examined this increasingly important issue, and today we'll be speaking to two of the co-authors, partner Martin Harrison and associate partner Ricky Singh, both of whom are based in the firm's Bay Area office. The article and underlying research are just one part of McKinsey's ongoing focus on tech product management, which has included previous articles on the evolving PM role, as well as the challenges finding enough qualified candidates. In order to help folks keep pace with the forefront of product management, McKinsey has recently rolled out its Product Academy, an open program featuring content from leading edge product practitioners. Notable speakers include Marty Kagan, founder of the Silicon Valley Product Group, Roanne Soans, Corporate Vice President at Microsoft, and Gokul Rajaram, a board member at Coinbase and Pinterest. You can register for the program at mck.co slash productacademy. That's all one word. That's mck.co slash productacademy. And now let's get to our conversation with Ricky Singh and Martin Harrison of McKinsey. Martin, Ricky, thanks so much for joining us on the pod today. Martin, let's start by defining responsible product management. Thank you, Daniel. Uh, Product management has experienced at least two significant waves of change in the last couple of decades. The first wave was associated with the shift from on-premise to cloud and led to a change from requirement gatherers to more product visionaries that were developing minimum viable products. The second wave was driven more by the consumerization of technology which led to PMs being anchored in design thinking, more data-driven product decisions and and customer obsessions. Now we think we're on the cusp of a third wave that is about to start, with some PMs beginning to incorporate inclusion, privacy, and sustainability into their products. That is how we define responsible product management uh, and responsible innovation as a whole. And what developments are fueling this third wave of product management? There has been McKinsey research that has looked at how ESG issues, strong performance can correlate with higher shareholder value. It's a good question. These topics are are certainly not new, but the COVID-19 pandemic has accentuated their importance. Uh, We got even more socially aware. We have very vocal employees We have increasing regulation, and all of this is accelerating uh, this wave of change that we've seen uh, over the past couple of years. And then in particular, the tech sector overall is on the leading edge, and it's providing many of the tools and systems that both companies and individuals use every day. So it becomes very much at the forefront of these changes. 
And uh, yes, uh, as, as you mentioned, uh, we've seen some separate uh, McKinsey research that found that over 80% of C-suite executives that we surveyed strongly believe that performance on ESG issues is correlated with higher stakeholder value. So that is certainly also a driver. And when thinking about responsible innovation broadly, what was natural about focusing on the role of product managers? Product managers was this really important center of the spider web role when it comes to developing products. They decide what gets built and they incorporate input from all kinds of different stakeholders. So they're at a natural point uh, when it comes to thinking also about responsibility. Uh, we'll soon not just be a nice to have, but this will be a, an essential when PMs think about building a good experience for the broader set of stakeholders. Ricky, tell us about the research that you did in this area. What were the main goals and how did you go about conducting it? When we started uh, looking into the space, in the beginning, our goal was to identify what's happening, what are the uh, common practices. We weren't even sure about the maturity on these dimensions. So it was very exploratory, which is why we started by interviewing industry leaders. That allowed us to test our hypothesis on the maturity on these dimensions. We very quickly realized that the leading tech companies that are investing in prominent roles, maybe investing in some frameworks, but this is happening in pockets. So once we realized that, we formed an initial perspective and started hosting panels with product managers to better understand how these are being adopted at grassroots level. And then finally, we ran a survey to quantify all the uh, trends that we were hearing about and all the frameworks that we had heard about. And what were the primary findings about how much the three dimensions of responsible product management, privacy, sustainability, inclusion, how much they're being prioritized these days? I think what didn't surprise Martin and me is that um, performance continued to be number one as a strategic priority. However, what did surprise us is privacy and sustainability surpassed usability uh, in terms of strategic priority. And then the other thing that surprised us was that inclusion was actually prioritized the lowest despite how uh, visible its impact is and how aware society now is of the implications of not being inclusive. Let's take a deeper dive on each of those three dimensions, starting with privacy. What did you find are the biggest challenges to incorporating privacy into product management? Privacy as a dimension was the most mature, but what's unique or most challenging about privacy is that it has a trade-off to usability. I mean, we all love to use products where it gives us recommendations, it allows suggestions, it remembers what I was trying to do so that I don't have to fill in all my information all over. But then we don't want this same product to have all our information, right? So that trade-off, which is the only way that you could drive more usability sometimes by using data as a filtering aid, also gets in the way of the product capturing your information and being able to use it. And increasingly with GDPR regulations and the focus on privacy, it seems like organizations are trying to now prioritize privacy over usability. Can you talk about the frameworks that some companies are starting to use to improve in this area? At the nascent stage, you think about it as trying to do data audits and understand what data about your customer are you storing? What's the retention policy on it? So it starts with the fundamentals, but as with the push on big data, having AI and ML algorithms in uh, your products, what's beginning to happen is there are some standardized frameworks coming to the fore. 
So 75% of the product managers said, you know, they employ differential privacy frameworks. And then 40% of them said that they are also uh, using federated learning approaches, right? Both of these are more prominent when you are uh, trying to build an intelligent algorithm that's either, um, in case of differential privacy, is take, tracking every time you make a pull on it, personalized information, in case of federated learning, is actually running on the device instead of running on the server. And judging by the percentages, as you said, privacy, it may not be ubiquitous, but it's definitely starting to become quite prevalent as an issue that these companies are thinking about. Absolutely. And I think it started with GDPR, but what's also been very inspiring is when measuring their progress on privacy, people are considering GDPR to be the norm, but that's not how they are measuring success. They want to do more than that, which is pretty inspiring. Martin, let's talk about sustainability. What are the key motivating factors to incorporate sustainability into product management? Well, from a from a basic business point of view, it's become more and more clear that customers are willing to pay for goods and services that are made in a sustainable way. And PMs have, have certainly taken note of such a trend. What we saw from the research was among those who ranked sustainability practices high on their list, almost 60% of them cited consumer demand as the, the top reason. About half of them also pointed to being able to attract capital as, as a really important factor. And the third one was regulatory pressures. It's a combination of those that really drive the motivation for looking at sustainability. And how much are barriers still a problem making sustainability a core dimension in there were two things that came up um, consistently. The first one was maybe not surprisingly, but a, a lack of capabilities. These are still quite new areas, even though they recognize knowing what to actually do about it is, is still unclear. That was the number one reason. And the second one was actually a standard definition of what good sustainable design really looks like. So there is some understanding about what drives, for example, emissions and so on. But when you get more into uh, technical product management, it's sometimes unclear what really drives good sustainable outcomes. And you guys found that either very few or no respondents have gone beyond using greenhouse gas protocol metrics to monitor carbon output. So that's right. Very few organizations have mapped out clear policies and sort of incentives that are related to sustainable design. There are respondents that said that they used scope one and scope two to measure carbon output, but no one has really gone beyond, right? And, and going beyond means that you don't just look at direct emissions from uh, the thing that you're working with, but also sort of secondary and tertiary effects. And that's really what's difficult for PMs to do these days. We think that this is a bit of a miss opportunity. And I think we've also seen with recent regulatory news from the SEC that it's going to become even more important to account for emissions throughout the life cycle. There are a few companies in the tech space that have started looking at this. For example, SAP has started incorporating carbon footprint into their software and into their financial accounting products. And Google, for example, has started building a comparison feature to not just pick the route that they choose based on time, but also based on carbon impact. So starting to see some of these things happening, but it's it's still pretty early. Right. And are there other product sectors that can be looked at for the kind of life cycle assessment accounting that you're talking about? 
it's probably debatable which one is more advanced, but consumer products has been out there thinking about this for a longer time and potentially being slightly more sophisticated. So I think that is an, an interesting space to look at for tech companies. Ricky, let's move on to the third dimension, um, inclusion. What are some examples of how persistent bias, whether race or gender, currently impacts how products in tech work or, or don't work for that matter? I think there's a lot of discussion around racial and gender inequity in the recent years, right? However, even if we did an audit of products, apps, even hardware that you have out there and try to understand if it's all equitable, the answer may not be yes. And we see that if you look at smartphone biometrics and cameras, they do struggle to perceive and render skin tones of non-white individuals. Right, there was uh, a very popular YouTube video around the same where it was not able to recognize dark-skinned individuals. Skewed data in payments and banking products could result in Black applicants being denied credit at a higher rate than white applicants. And then individuals with uh, visual impairments or mobility constraints sometimes have to wait longer to even get access or accommodations into products that have been released. A lot of uh, the bias that we see in algorithms can be attributed to the fact that algorithms are typically trained on historical data and that historical data itself could be biased, which is a little bit of what's happening when you look at the banking product example I was using. I think you mentioned earlier that inclusion had rated the lowest as a top design priority. Only 17% of managers cited it as such compared with around 37 or 38 for privacy and sustainability. What do you think is the primary reason that it's so challenging compared to the other two? I think product managers, you know, stated their primary reason as being there are limited tools, there are subjective metrics, and, you know, no direct linkage to performance. Underlying all of this is the inherent subjectivity in how you define success on the inclusion dimension. And what I mean by that is you could say that our bar on being inclusive is not to discriminate. And that could be that your application is able to meet ADA compliance uh, standards, right? And that's enough. Like you're accessible, you could use a Windows narrator to navigate your entire app, and that may be a win and that's sufficient. Or you may say, actually, I want to go a step further and I want to look at being more inclusive, not just accessibility compliant. So the fact that you have almost a gradient scale and you could define good on that scale is making it harder to address this dimension as a whole. Of course, what metric do you use to say that you are 100% inclusive or 50% inclusive? That doesn't exist. And then the final piece is we can say that by being inclusive, you expand your consumer base. Like by being inclusive, you'll bring more uh, consumers into your purchasing fold. Drawing that direct linkage to performance metrics is critical to then incentivize PMs, right? And hold them accountable to prioritize this. As you pointed out, Inclusion is the most subjective in terms of how you measure success. That's an incredibly complex issue to hand off to product managers if they're not getting enough tools and guidance. And it's also a risky one, right? Imagine going out and saying, oh, I've now come up with a scale and I'm 30% inclusive. Nobody would want to say that. So there has to be some sensitivity around defining how to measure inclusion for people to get comfortable with what they measure and what they report. Martin's lived this on the sustainability dimension front, which is only when you started measuring sustainability as a metric, you started seeing the movement on the green line is when everyone started to pick that dimension up sincerely, right? So something similar has to happen on inclusion 
for it to get the recognition it deserves. In the article, you guys referenced some pioneering approaches that a few companies are starting to use in this area. So there are two aspects on inclusion. One is how could you do more of inclusive design? And that's all around how you shift left the thinking around inclusion right at the beginning of your product design stage. How do you start making sure you consider all the different types of user bases you're going to touch and get their perspectives in? So there are a couple popular methods there. Perspective hats and another lens are the two that came up in our research. Another lens is a framework that Airbnb has put out there. It's a tool that has these cards and each card addresses a point which allows you to balance your bias, consider the opposite perspective, and then try to embrace a growth mindset. It's just a tool or an exercise that allows you to think differently upfront when you're thinking about your personas and what their needs are. The second pillar is around the historical data set driving bias in what your smart algorithm is learning. Microsoft and Google have both developed publicly available AI playbooks to give development teams guidelines on ethical and responsible design. So that's the second way that companies are trying to address this. About being able to measure success. Is this an industry body or group made up of different tech companies pooling their ideas for how to to measure something like this? Or do you think one company will figure it out and then make it publicly available and then it'll go from there and get adopted more? On the design front, I think there'll be experimentation in terms of what different companies are trying. Setting the metric is where people would have to come together because metrics are typically adopted when they become industry standard. One company saying, this is how I'm going to measure will not allow that standard to be created, right? The strongest parallel is sustainability. Until we had scope one, scope two measurements defined as the industry standard, how people will report, it's very hard to say, I'm going to measure my carbon emissions in this manner. On the frameworks, I think there'll still be a lot of experimentation. Martin, we've talked before about how finding qualified candidates who had these varied skills and background was already proving difficult. What steps can organizations take to help enable product managers to succeed at responsible product management? While this is difficult, we also think that there are a number of uh, simple steps that you can start taking today that will have real impact. So this is not something which should sit back and wait. First, elevating one of these dimensions or more, but even just starting with one as a strategic priority will make a huge difference. So this means you know, having executives actually look at this in product reviews as a top-level outcome metric makes a big difference. And that's really where it has to start. Number two is to update the approach for how you select and how you prioritize new products and features and how that gets incorporated into the product development lifecycle. Prioritization metrics today are mostly around how customers will like that, how will it drive adoption, how will it drive engagement, and ultimately how it will monetize. But adding criterion around some of the topics that we've talked about so far can make a big difference. Number three is to start rolling out some training and framework. In particular, there are standardized frameworks and artifacts that we think can have a, a lot of impact in a pretty short amount of time. So some of these things that we mentioned earlier, where there's some tech companies that use simple templates around where their data comes from and what kind of machine learning models they use is a major first step. 
And then the fourth thing that I would mention is to take advantage of some of the off the shelf tools that you can adopt today. For example, around assessing federated machine learning techniques. This will really help uh, product managers and their teams to save time and effort instead of developing some of these tools from scratch themselves. The article mentioned the importance of integrating responsible design criteria directly into the product development lifecycle, starting at the lab phase. Why is that so critical? We believe that you have to start thinking about this from the onset uh, when you start developing a product. And this relates a little bit to what Ricky was talking about earlier around how bias can creep into products, especially when it's things that are hard to measure. If you don't think about them from the beginning, it gets harder to see them later on in the process. So we do think that applying some of these frameworks early on will be really important. I'd also add to that, no engineer likes downstream churn. So if a PM (laughs) detects it later and you want to go back and talk to an engineer about how the requirement changed, I don't think that's a fun conversation to have. So the more early on we think about it, the less we'll have to face down the line. I just wanted to ask both of you to take a slightly broader view of the future for responsible product management. I'm just wondering how far you realistically hope and expect responsible product management to be five to 10 years from now, and whether you can envision a day when responsibility dimensions rank as important as, say, performance at the top of the charts. I would almost turn that around. I think it's hard to imagine how it would not become as important as performance and usability. If you just look at where the world is heading, it's almost inevitable. It's like speculating on any kind of new technology, whether it's self-driving cars or quantum computing, getting that exact timing right is very hard. Does that take five years? Does it take 10 years? That one I, I find hard to assess. Personally, I do think it's probably closer to five years than 10 years, but that's maybe an optimistic sense. Product managers love solving challenging problems. You know, they crack the one on customer experience and how to build products that customers fall in love with. So they will be up to the challenge of figuring these out next, right? And given that they're already thinking about it, prioritizing them in pockets, I can totally see them figure out ways to scale this. One thing that companies may want to think about is, do they want to be passive in how they enable their product managers? Or do they want to take an active role and actually help them get there? Because they are on that journey, regardless of whether the organization is with them or not. And perhaps... As would seem logical, the companies that take more of an active role may end up getting to it faster and potentially reap rewards for being ahead of the curve. Also, in this environment of intense talent competition may even attract the right talent because people want to work for companies that have a mission that invest in responsibility dimensions. So it would also help them attract some of the best talent that is out there. Good point. I know McKinsey's done a lot of research and articles recently about the importance of purpose and meaning at work and how critical that is in talent recruitment these days. So I could see that being part of the PM value proposition in terms of who's really seriously addressing these issues. At the end of the day, all product managers want to build products that they can be proud of. Well, Martin and Ricky, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this topic of responsible product management. It's critical for companies and for our society going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you. That does it for today's pod. 
Thanks, as always, to our podcast production team, Molly Carlin, Sid Romtree, Myron Shergan, and Polly Noah. And most importantly, thank you. We hope you'll return for future episodes of McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening. 